Welcome to the Christian History Podcast, Chapter 3, Episode 91. Last week, I covered men named Bezuel and Aholiab, along with the tablets where the Ten Commandments and the Mosaic Covenant were written. And also I covered the Golden Calf, all part of the Exodus narrative found in chapters 31 and 32. If you missed that episode, you should go back and give it a listen. This week, believe it or not, I'm finally finishing the chapter of the podcast on the book of Exodus. And with that, let's get started. Normally, I would start out this episode in Exodus chapter 33, where God commands the Israelites to leave Sinai. But there's nothing in there that's really the subject of this podcast. Essentially, no history. And the remainder of the book, all the way through its 40th chapter, is very redundant with the previous several chapters. The most recent episodes have been about everything God told Moses to do while he was on Sinai for 40 days and nights. And the balance of Exodus is about Moses seeing that it all happened. Redundant. Which leaves me the rest of this episode for a very broad overview of what has been the subject of 91 episodes. A summary of the book of Exodus from chapter 1. Exodus picks up where Genesis leaves off. Well, almost. Much time has passed, 400 years in some estimates. Of course, at the end of Genesis, in the last few chapters, Jacob turned Israel and his family moved to Egypt and were fruitful and multiplied. In the beginning of Exodus, a new pharaoh is ruling the lands, beginning to grow weary of these non-Egyptians and their increasing numbers, and with that, their growing power. So, he does what dictators do. He dictates and enslaves, all in hopes of controlling this population of non-Egyptians. The Egyptians became ruthless, making the Israelites' lives difficult, to the point that he commands the Hebrew midwives to murder all male newborns, and they secretly disobeyed him. So, he then orders the Egyptians to throw male newborns into the Nile. In both cases, he allowed female babies to live. Somehow, the baby Moses survives this purge for three months. Then his mother places him in a woven basket and puts the basket in the river, where he is discovered by Pharaoh's daughter. He's adopted into the royal family and raised alongside all the other royals. The narrative fast-forwards to where he is presumably a young adult, in an incident when Moses murders an Egyptian. Pharaoh learns of this and seeks to kill Moses, who then flees to Midian. Once there, he sits resting at a well, where he runs into the local priest's seven daughters, who were being harassed by some shepherds. Moses comes to the defense of the young ladies, and due to his heroics, he is invited back to the priest's house. Timing is everything. The priest is so appreciative that he gives Moses one of his daughters in marriage, who bears Moses a son. Circling back to Egypt, Pharaoh dies and was presumably replaced by a crueler king. The Israelites cry out to God, who remembers his previous covenants with the people. God speaks to Moses via the burning bush at Mount Horeb, which may have been another name for Mount Sinai. 
God tells Moses to return to Egypt to lead the Israelites from their captivity. Moses argues a bit, but God assures him that he will be with Moses for the entire journey. God also gives Moses several ways to convince the Israelites and Egyptians that God is with him. Moses does get God to task his brother Aaron as the mouthpiece for the entire mission. Moses finally departs Midian, with his wife Zipporah in tow. On the way back, in one of the more confusing parts of the Old Testament, God tries to kill Moses, but Zipporah intervenes, saving his life. At this point, the narrative switches to Aaron, who was told by God to travel to the wilderness to meet up with his long-lost brother Moses, and Aaron needed no convincing. The brotherly pair then return together to Egypt and meet up with the Israelite elders explaining their mission from God to liberate the people. Moses and Aaron confront an otherwise nameless Pharaoh saying the legendary line of, Let my people go. This time for three days to celebrate a festival to God in the wilderness. The pair then warn the dictator of dire consequences should he not allow this short respite. Pharaoh reacts by ordering his masters to work the Israelite slaves harder. The Israelites, all the way up to the elders, are beginning to backlash against Moses and Aaron. Moses then prays. God gives him his message of reassurance and deliverance to relate to the people, which he delivers. God then tells Moses to again approach the Egyptian dictator, requesting that the Israelites be allowed to leave and worship. Aaron was acting as his spokesman. Pharaoh, he's unimpressed. Aaron throws down his staff, which immediately turns to a snake. The Egyptian magicians duplicate the feat. Pharaoh remains unimpressed. The next day, Pharaoh and Moses meet on the banks of the Nile, which Moses then turns to blood, killing everything in it and making the life-giving water undrinkable. The first plague. Pharaoh's magicians then do the same, so Pharaoh remains unimpressed. Seven days later, the next plague, this time frogs, all over the place, including Pharaoh's bedroom. And the magicians duplicate, but this only leads to more frogs. They should have seen that one coming. Still, no change of heart, though Pharaoh did ask the brothers to pray to God to have the frogs exterminated, promising if they did, he would allow the three-day worship break. Moses and Aaron pray, God removes the frogs, and Pharaoh went back on his word, not allowing the Israelites the wilderness excursion. The third plague cometh. The exact pest is a bit of a mystery, with the most likely candidates being gnats, lice, or some other pesky insect. And, for the first time, the magicians couldn't duplicate the feat, telling Pharaoh that it had to be the work of the Israelites' God. Despite this, Pharaoh remains steadfast. Cue the fourth plague, flies. In the Jewish faith, it is generally viewed as being an array of wild animals, probably a mixture of snakes, scorpions, venomous reptiles, and possibly other venomous insects such as wasps, centipedes, and the like. And, no matter which you believe, None of these were welcomed creatures. But since the Israelites were living in Goshen, they were not impacted by the infestation. Pharaoh then agrees to allow the Israelites the requested three days, 
if Moses will first ask God to remove the flies. Moses does, and surprise, Pharaoh changes his mind. The fifth plague has the Egyptian livestock struck dead, but the Israelite animals are spared. Still, Pharaoh doesn't budge, which brought on a plague of boils. No change of heart. The sixth plague is hell that killed unsheltered people and livestock, but did not impact Goshen. Pharaoh asks Moses to pray that it stops, again with a false promise, and Moses complies. Next are locusts, after which Pharaoh's advisors tell him to let the Israelites go, but still he's not relenting. Then there's a darkness over the land, a darkness so strong that it could be felt, a darkness that lasted for three days. Three days without light in their world. It's inferred that the darkness did not impact Goshen. Pharaoh tells Moses he can take the people to the wilderness to worship, but they have to leave their livestock behind. No deal. The two end up yelling threats at each other. Then the final plague. Death to the firstborn. People, animals, everything. At least those in unmarked houses. The first Passover. At midnight, God did as he said he would and kills the firstborn. And a cry went out over the land. It was after this, almost immediately after, that Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron and told them to leave and worship, taking their livestock with them. At this point, it's relatively clear that Pharaoh expected them to return after the three-day worship festival. While they were leaving, the Israelites plundered the Egyptians of their silver, gold, clothing, jewelry, and likely many other valuables. They left in such a hurry that the bread had yet to be leavened, the beginning of a tradition that lasts through today. And with that, the Israelites finally depart, as many as 2.4 million of them, after living in Egypt for some 430 years. The next part of the narrative are specific instructions on how the Israelites are to celebrate their release, including animal sacrifices and the redemption of firstborn sons. The Israelites begin heading towards the Red Sea, or the Sea of Reeds, but not directly for Canaan. We're told that God foresaw the need for the Israelites to not directly invade Canaan, thinking that immediate strife and hardship would make them want to return to Egypt. God would lead them with a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night, leading them on a route designed to make Pharaoh believe they are wandering aimlessly. God then hardens Pharaoh's heart so that he sends his chariot-equipped army in pursuit of the Israelites. At this point, many of the Israelites grew weary and fearful of dying in the wilderness and wished to return to the relatively safe and certainly known confines of Egyptian bondage. With the Egyptian army in pursuit, Moses parts the Red Sea, and the Israelites walk across. The Egyptians follow, only to get bogged down and drown when the waters rushed back in. Moses then breaks into a song, appropriately named the Song of Moses. Aaron's sister, Miriam, grabs a tambourine, and she too breaks into a song and dance. The Israelites then depart the shore of the Red Sea, headed towards the wilderness of Shur. For three days, they travel through the desert without water, and finally come to a place known as Mara. There's water here, but it's too bitter to drink, 
and the people complained. God tells Moses to throw some wood into the water, which makes it drinkable. The people then make it to Elam, an oasis with 12 springs and 70 palm trees. They set up camp there. After a bit, they set out from Elam, headed towards the wilderness of Sin. We're told that Sin is between Elam and Sinai, so ultimately, they're headed towards Sinai. The people then complain that they have no food. God provides them with this mysterious manna, a normal amount five days a week and a double helping on the sixth, enough to keep them fed on the seventh. Accompanying the heavenly manna were quails to provide protein. This food was provided on the same schedule for the next 40 years of wandering. They next end up at Rephidim, again without water, and they complained again, some even publicly wishing they had never left Egypt. God tells Moses what to do next. With several of the elders in tow, he strikes a rock with his staff, and out comes water. The Israelites then get into a fight and defeat the Amalekites, with Moses playing a pivotal role while watching the battle from a nearby hilltop. Moses builds an altar and predicts future battles against these descendants of Esau. Next, Moses' father-in-law Jethro shows up. It's now that we're told of how at a point between Moses reappeared in Egypt on his mission from God, and probably before he freed the Israelites, that he sent his wife, along with his two sons, to live with his father-in-law Jethro. Recall that Jethro was a Midian, and that it was Moses' wife and Jethro's daughter, Zipporah, that saved Moses from God's wrath. Previously, we were told that Moses' oldest son was named Gershom, it is only now that we learn his second son was named Eleazar. In Hebrew, his oldest son's name translates to the phrase, I have been an alien residing in a foreign land, or something like that. Eleazar translates to a phrase similar to, God help me. But to be clear, it could also mean, God has helped me. Anyway, Jethro shows back up with Moses' wife and two sons in tow. He had heard of the great things Moses had accomplished, and when he arrived, the two men went to Moses' tent and caught up on all that had transpired since they last spoke. Of course, Moses had many stories to tell. Then something significant occurs. Recall that Jethro was not only a Midian, but was a priest in that society. The Midians were a polytheistic people who worshipped a pantheon of gods similar to that of other Mesopotamian groups, gods such as baal Pure and the Queen of Heaven, Ashtoreth. But in Genesis 18, Jethro, having heard of the great things done by the God of Moses, drops his pantheon and converts to Moses' monotheistic religion, offering burnt offerings and sacrifices. The next day, we learn of the legal system that the Israelites formed upon their leaving Egypt. Actually, the word system is far too generous. Essentially, Moses would attempt to solely solve all of the disputes between the people. And remember, these people numbered somewhere between a million and a half and two and a half million. The wise Jethro advises his son-in-law to delegate this task. So, Moses established the system of judges, after this, Jethro departs for Midian. 
the Israelites then leave for the wilderness of Sinai. Shortly after arrival at Sinai, Moses is summoned up the mountain and told that God will address the people. In preparation, the people clean everything, and God speaks to Moses, designed so that the people can overhear it, at least overhear the sound of thunder. Moses makes the trip up and down Sinai several times, sometimes alone and sometimes with others accompanying him. God gives him the commandments and instructions on how to build an altar. We're also told of how the people feared the presence of God and asked that Moses act as intermediary between God and them. Over the next couple of chapters, beginning in 21, God gives Moses, who relayed to the people, many detailed rules for their new society. Rules concerning slavery, violence, parent-child relations, kidnapping, property, all sorts of rules and regulations, restitution for property crimes, indentured servitude, social and religious laws, banking relations, rules about the Sabbath, how to farm land, the three mandated annual festivals, all sorts of statutes. Then God tells Moses of his plans for the future, to reclaim their land in Canaan, that they will claim the land from the Red Sea to the Sea of the Philistines and from the wilderness to the Euphrates. This, along with the previous several chapters, make up what has become known as the Mosaic Covenant. Moses makes an altar and binds the people to the covenant. Moses and seventy or so of the elders, including Aaron, then climb the mountain and visit with God. They all go back down, then Moses and Joshua reascend, staying this time for forty days and nights. During this protracted visit, God provides Moses with the instructions that will serve as the basis for their religion for the next several centuries. For Jewish adherents, this is the foundation for the religion they continue to practice today. Instructions on the tabernacle, the tent of meeting, the Ark of the Covenant, the table of the bread of the presence, the altars, the candlestick, anointing oil, lamp oil, holy incense, animals to sacrifice, plates, utensils, linen, curtains, covers, and the bronze wash basin. So many things in so much detail that it left little to chance. God identified the men who would lead the construction of these things. He taps Aaron as the first high priest, and we're told what the priests are to wear and how they are to be consecrated. So much detail. There's a small section on a census and a half-shekel tax to be imposed on all adult males for the upkeep of the temple, a tax that would continue through the life of Christ God reiterates the importance of the Sabbath to Moses and carves the commandments in stone tablets for Moses to carry back down the mountain. Then a plot twist, the golden calf, created by Aaron and worshipped by some of the people, all done while Moses was on the mountain for those 40 days, getting all of the details. God tells Moses of this transgression, and Moses pleads with God for mercy. He then heads down the mountain and loses his temper when he sees for himself what the Israelites have done. In his rage, he smashes the tablets that God himself had carved. Moses orders the Levites to slaughter the people who had done such a thing, and they comply, killing around 3,000 of their brothers that day. Soon afterward, Moses heads back uphill again to appeal to God. 
this time God tells Moses he will punish the offenders, and he follows through, sending a plague. God then instructs Moses to leave Sinai, but they don't leave just yet, as a few things happen first. God is still furious about the idol worship and tells Moses that he won't be joining them on the trip, but will still leave an angel to lead them, and he reiterates that they are a stiff-necked people. But he does renew his promise to drive out the people currently inhabiting the promised land. He's mad, but he hasn't abandoned them. In the next part of the narrative, we are finally let in the loop on this thing called the Tent of the Meeting. It's been referred to a few times previously, but not too much detail was given until now. It was set up outside the camp, actually at quite a distance. Everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the Tent of Meeting. Whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people would watch. When Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would descend, and the Lord would speak with Moses. When all the people saw the pillar of cloud, they would rise and bow down at the entrances of their own tents. We're told that while he was in the tent, God would speak to Moses like he was a friend. Moses goes up to Sinai, and God replaces the broken tablets. It was on this visit that God passed by Moses while he was in the cleft of the rock. Also while he was up there, Moses asked God to accompany the people on their journey. God addresses Moses and makes a covenant with him, and therefore the Israelite people. If the people obey God, he will perform miracles and drive the inhabitants of Canaan out. But the Israelites must do as they are commanded. God orders them not to make a covenant with the inhabitants of Canaan warning them that doing so would be a trap. Instead, they are to tear down their altars, break up their pillars, and cut down their sacred poles. This way, they do not end up worshiping the Canaanites' gods. The sons of the Israelites are to marry the daughters of the Israelites. That way, the bloodlines are kept secure, and they will be less likely to worship the false gods. God reiterates that they are not to cast idols, also, they are required to celebrate the Festival of Unleavened Bread, the Passover, the Festival of Weeks, the First Fruits of the Wheat Harvest, and the Festival of Ingathering at the turn of the year. Their firstborn sons are to serve as a sign from God. The firstborn male livestock are to be sacrificed to God. No one shall appear before God empty-handed, meaning everyone is required to make an offering. The best of the first fruits will be brought to the house of the Lord. God also reiterated the requirement to keep the Sabbath, and all the other previously given rules and commandments are repeated. Moses comes back a changed man. Seriously. And it wasn't because he was starving. We're told that when he descended the mountain and rejoined the Israelites, the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. When the Israelites saw Moses, the skin of his face was shining so much that they were afraid to come near him. Moses called to them, and Aaron and all the leaders of the congregation finally came up to him and Moses addressed them, giving them the commandments. From that point forward, when with the Israelites, Moses wore a veil. He only took it off when he was in the presence of God. Finally, and like I mentioned in the beginning of the episode, the last portion of Exodus details how the Israelites built everything that God specified. 
it's exceedingly redundant with the prior section concerning the specifications that God gave Moses. In the last portion of the book, we're told that in the first month of the second year, so one year after their release from captivity, the tabernacle is erected. The book ends with a description of what was seen when God was with them, from the text. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled upon it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Whenever the cloud was taken up from the tabernacle, the Israelites would set out on each stage of their journey. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they would not set out until the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and fire was in the cloud by night, before the eyes of all of the house of Israel at each stage of their journey. End quote. And that's it for Exodus. Some 91 episodes, almost two years worth, an estimated 300,000 plus words. To put that in perspective, that's over 10 times the length of Exodus itself, demonstrating how dense this book really is. It's also the end of the third chapter of the podcast. The next episode begins the fourth chapter and the book of Leviticus. Join me next week for that. You don't want to miss it. Comments and questions can be sent to comments at christianhistorypodcast.com. As always, you can find information about the podcast on the internet at christianhistorypodcast.com. This week, help others to find the podcast by leaving a positive review on iTunes. For those of you that have asked, how can you help out? Leaving a review on iTunes is the absolute best way. You can find the Facebook page by searching the phrase Christian History Podcast as three separate words. Once there, be sure to like the page so that it's easier to find later. Finally, if you're enjoying the podcast, subscribe so you get the episodes as soon as they are released and you don't miss out. Thanks for listening and have a great week.